that we're on with the gospel, when certain things come into play, it is very easy for the work of the gospel to get off course. That's why Paul wrote some of the things that he wrote to the churches. He was constantly trying to bump them back into the right trajectory. He wanted them to hit the mark. And if you allow yourself to be passionate about anything at its core except the gospel work itself, then what happens is you start to do church work instead of gospel work. And the minute that you start doing church work, then the church becomes an end unto itself. We become our own culture. We become our own people arguing about things that maybe God doesn't even think about while the gospel is over here like a car that's just sitting in idle waiting for the church to get back into the gospel car so we can put it back in gear and stay on course. So the church has to make sure that it stays on its trajectory. It's going the right place. And I'm going to give you about 10 things right now that I have I have faced in our own ministry, especially since we came to Colorado, when everything gets stripped away and you got to start over and you go, all right, what are we really? What is it about the gospel? There's something about it. If, if it's not a little bit of a wrestling match, I'm not sure if we're on a, the right trajectory. Because which walls are we trying to tear down? What city are we trying to take? What people, what forces are coming against us? The gospel work will be challenged. It will be faced with things. And the minute that things start to get rough for you, things start to get a little out of control, you just might be on the right course. Good to see you. Have you, has there, have you ever woken up and you're like, things were going great last week, things are just are not going great this week, and part of you is all mad, but then part of you goes, you know what, maybe I'm going the right direction. Maybe I'm pushing the right buttons. Maybe the enemy's not happy with me right now. Try it. Try to win somebody for the Lord. Try to start a Bible study. Try to reach your family. Try to you know, start laying hands on the sick. Start, you know, testing God at his word. Start trying to believe God for more finance. And all of a sudden, life just starts to spin out of control. And you're like, what is going on? I'll tell you what's going on. You're going the right direction. And there's forces trying to bump you and get you off, off course. So the things I'm going to give you right now are all things that we've had to wrestle through. But they're all things that Paul went through, and he writes about them in all of his epistles. And I've generalized here, but I want you to take a look at these. These are things that when we uh, take the gospel out of the center, the gospel is not the goal, then we begin to, be, uh, to live a certain way or do certain things that maybe aren't as profitable to the kingdom. So this is what happens when the gospel is no longer central to our lives and what we're doing. Number one, when the gospel is no longer central we begin to pray our ideals instead of our responsibilities. In other words, God says, this is the kind of church I want you to build. We go, okay, I got a vision. We have a vision. So we have a vision, and in our vision, we imagine uh, whatever we imagine, buildings and thousands of people, and we go, oh, we could do that, and that's great, and seen that before, let's do this, and we have a vision, and we begin to pray for the vision that God gave us, but what we miss is that God's the one who gave us the vision, so that is already in play. What's not in play, play is our responsibility to get there. We pray for the things that are not our part. Right. What we should be doing, instead of saying, Lord, give us the city, we go, Jesus, give me the strength to get out of bed at 4.30 this morning and set up for church. Amen. Right. 
people go, well, that is not a prayer of faith. Oh, that's a prayer of faith. You have no idea. Lord Jesus, I see it. I can see it. We're going to raise up leaders. Lord, give us thousands of leaders. And God goes, I want you to pray for the systems and the processes to raise up leaders because you're not very organized. And if you don't figure it out, it's never going to happen. And so we begin to pray for the things that God, that are God's part. It's already in play. He's going to do it if we do our part. And what happens is that when we forget about the gospel, this central gospel thing in front of us, and we're fighting for something, then all of a sudden we just begin to pray for what we see about ourselves or what we feel about the ministry. And we have the vision and the vision is good. But the Lord's saying, quit praying your ideals and your vision and pray your responsibilities. Pray that I give you strength for Tuesday, for Wednesday, for that meeting, for that conversation, for this business meeting, uh, for you to finish the project that you've got to finish because it's the foundation for all the other projects that are going to come. You need to pray for yourself. Don't pray for me. I'll give you all the vision you need. Hey. And then, then, we, then we begin to blame God when the prayers aren't answered. We begin, when the prayers don't happen, get answered the way we think they should, then we say, Lord, why aren't you answering our prayers? And he's going, I did answer your prayers. I've answered the prayers that you refuse to pray, but because I know your heart and what you really need, I'm answering the prayers that you need, not the prayers that you want. You keep praying for my part, and I keep answering for your part. He, he, he answers the prayers that we need. And we get so frustrated when prayers don't get answered. But sometimes we're just praying for the wrong things. Number two, you begin to manage mediocrity instead of guiding passion. When the gospel is not central and we don't have a view of the gospel and what we're trying to accomplish and we get off course a little bit, we begin to manage mediocrity. Instead of guiding passion, instead of saying, Lord, guide my passion, we settle into a mediocre life of, it's just kind of the same all the time. Passion has to be guided. Mediocrity and apathy needs no guide. Apathy needs no direction. It needs no path. Apathy needs nobody to say, come on, you can do it, because it's going to go, I don't want to do it. Apathy and mediocrity says, we're okay the way that we are. Is anybody here happy with the way you are? I, I'm not. How many of you need to change? How many of you in the room know that you have got things in your life that have settled and they've become mediocre, things that you don't even know why God put them in your heart and they're just sitting there, they're idling like the car, and you'd love for God to get inside it, rev it up, get you moving it so that Jesus has to put his hand on the wheel and guide you on your way. Passion has to be guided. Mediocrity needs no guide. But the minute that we forget that we're living for someone else and not ourselves, we begin to settle into the okay, I'm doing all right, everything looks right, my agenda, my checklist is going okay, and the gospel becomes secondary to our lifestyle. And the minute the gospel becomes secondary to our lifestyle, we're not on course anymore. There's nothing about lifestyle in scripture except that your lifestyle will change according to the call, the season, and the sacrifice that we're asked to give. And so we have to make sure that we're moving on course and we're not becoming mediocre or ap apathetic in our spirit. I love the car commercial where, uh, you remember this, I can't remember the car, I was thinking about it this morning, but it's the car commercial where the, oh, it's the, I think it's Subaru, and the guy's a painter, 
And the car takes him everywhere to see every scenery. And he paints all these paintings. You know, he's on top of a mountain in a Subaru. He's painting. You know, he's in the middle of a, a storm on the ocean. He's painting. He's out on this rock and almost like death defying. He's painting. And he's got his wife with him. And they go through all these places. And the last scene of the commercial is this guy in his house. And they're putting all the paintings up on the wall. And they're horrible. <laughs> it's just horrible. It's like, he's like the worst painter in the world. And so it starts out so incredible and all this, you know, the cinematography for the commercial. The Subaru is driving him through the woods and through the desert and in the ocean. And then, then at the end, his wife is standing next to him and he, they show all the paintings and he looks at them and they're horrible. And he goes, which is your favorite one? And she goes, uh, this one. <laughs> and she just kind of puts her hand, hand up here. His passion completely blinded him to whether or not he was a good painter. L listen, I'd rather deal with someone who is so passionate about what they're doing and, and try to help them figure out what they're good at and what they're not good at than to have somebody who's really good at something, but they're totally apathetic about what God gave them. Can't deal with people like that. I have a gift, but I don't know. I mean, it depends on whether or not, you know, I like your philosophy. <laughs> Why don't you get involved? You know, it's going to take a couple of more months just to figure out what you're all about. <laughs> really, what I'm all about. Sometimes I want to just go, can I just tell you what you're all about? <laughs> and, and the answer is you. You're all about you. It's all about you. It's just all about you. People make... People make, why are you looking at me that way, honey? <laughs> People make appointments just to come in and talk about themselves. I love it when people love, to, they make appointments to come talk about the kingdom. I love tone deaf people who can't sing, who want to be on the worship team. I love it. Because I'll put you up here, I'll turn you off in the mic and let you worship because just your, just your spirit will make our church better at worship. And the honest to God truth is I've done it before. <laughs> Multiple times. And, and, and what's even better is I'm so honest with these people, I tell them that. And they love it. I tell them that. I, I've said to people, you are not that good. I'm going to be honest with you. You're not a very good singer. And I'm like, but I'm going to put you up there and I want you to worship with all your heart. I want you to give. And they're like, yeah! You know, it's like they've made it. I'm like, well, okay, here we go. <laughs> they love it. But I'd rather guide passion than manage mediocrity. Number three, if the gospel isn't central to what you're trying to hit, then any work is okay. Any work becomes okay. We look for any work instead of a permanent work. I, we're not in the business of any work. I think churches have gone through seasons. The body of Christ has changed a lot. I think so many people are trying to simplify what they do because they've gotten so pro programized uh, that it's become problematic and they, they can't even do anything to work for the gospel anymore because they don't have time to pray. They don't have time to think. They don't have time to meditate on what is the good thing, the God thing to do instead of just the program thing. Churches all over the world are 
changing their programs right now, canceling things, quitting things, ending services. You know, we don't need all these services. Let's get rid of all these services because our people who run the services are, are so tired that they don't have any time to do anything else but, but run a service. And if you really want to get energy back into your people, give them some time to go out and share the gospel with some friends and family and be a part of an outreach and stuff a box at Thanksgiving and be a part of something instead of just you know, running them dry. We're not looking for any work. We're looking for permanent work. We're looking for the work that stays with you and it doesn't change. At the Bible college, I had several people ask me. I love it when I get in that context because they run up to me and they start asking me questions. Doug, can we talk about interns? Doug, can we talk about how to, how to lead the student body? Doug, can we talk about this? What would you do? How would you get them to go from point A to point B in the, in the year or the two or the four that we've got them? And they want me to give them all this stuff. And, I, and, I, and this week, I just stopped. I said, look, you're, you're right about everything, but you're missing one crucial aspect of this. And that is that you take a class, you have a notebook. It was amazing. Love classes. You can go to school one years, two years, three years, four years, six years. But if in all of that journey, there's no, there's no moment. There's no moment where the Holy Spirit comes in and just nails you. Where he just comes in and so I, I told the intern director at home, I said, I said, don't worry about their their grades so much and their classes so much because they're gonna, they're fine with that. They're gonna do great. They're interns. It, it, it's not accredited anyways. <laughs> just sit in class, just sit there in class and watch them. Just watch them. And in prayer. When you see them turn their head, you watch a tear fall off their face. You run over to them, you grab them, you lay hands on them, and you say, what do you need prayer for? What's going on in your heart? And you pray for them, and you stand with them, and you pray for change and transformation. It could be them, their mom, their dad, a brother, their sister, a family member, and you go for the moments because life, 10 years from now, when they're not there, life is not going to be about the notebook. It's going to be about the moment. It's going to be about the permanent work. I don't remember all the classes I took, but I do remember the altar calls where I cried, where I wept, where my father figures came up and held me in their arms, where I cried and got all my, my, my you know, father issues out at the altar. I remember those moments. I remember when, the, when the, my first pastor came and gave me a book. It made me feel so smart. You know, people were giving books to everybody, you know, a lot, you know, back in the late 90s and into the millennium term. No one ever gave me a book. I, I used to think, do, do they think I can't read? <laughs> Nobody ever gives me a book. So then, then the first guy comes up, a pastor, a leader comes up and gives me a book. And I was so excited. And he, and he hands me the book and it was all in Greek. <laughs> and so part of me was like, I, I was hoping for like the purpose-driven life or you know, instead, I, it's a Greek interlinear New Testament. And he goes, I believe in you. <laughs> you know, he's like, you can do this. You're a studier. You can learn this stuff. It was, it was huge for me. I remember that moment. I don't remember what classes I've done. Like, I don't, God knows, 150, 250 credits. I don't even remember what classes they go to. But I remember when I hit my knees in chapel and cried out to the Lord and said, Jesus, I want to serve you all the days of my life. I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll say it the way you want me to say it. I belong to you. I'll give it all up. Let's go. I remember that moment. Life is about permanent work, not about any work. I got a buddy who lives up in, up in uh, Montana, and he's got a son in high school who's a real stud football player. Guy comes, kid comes down here, 
with his dad, and they ended up at a Broncos game, and the entire Broncos football team signs this football. I said, who was there? So we're going through the players, and made a mistake, though. Kid's so excited, he takes it home, starts throwing it around with his friends, and they realize that they had signed it in erasable ink. And within five minutes of throwing the ball around, a couple of the kids looked down and they said, hey, you're not going to win. And all of the signatures were either gone or smudged. There's a per- there was a permanency. What we do is, if the gospel is not central, we get so excited about the things that we do, and then we get down the road a little while later and we realize, boy, I'm sure tired, but I'm not sure what I accomplished. I mean, we worked our tails off building the church but I'm not sure if what we did was permanent because I'm not looking at, looking at permanent in how it made me feel. I'm looking at permanent in him. What's the permanent work in this young man? I'm looking for the permanent work in this wonderful woman of God right here. What's God doing in her life? Because I'm going to see that forever. I can see that five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road. I can look at her and see the transformation that took place in her life. And I go, thank you, Jesus, that I was attentive to something permanent. And not worried about just making sure that the temporary felt real good to me. Number four, I'll go very quickly. The creative process becomes paralyzed. If, if you're not on track and the gospel is not the central thing that you're trying to accomplish in people's lives. And let me say this. It was the goal of Jesus. Jesus, the smartest man to ever walk the earth. He contained all knowledge, fully man, fully God. He could talk about anything, say anything, talk about it any way you want to talk about it. He could confuse you all day long and still be right. But Jesus chose to come down and treat us like little children and tell us stories. The gospel was the, was the main purpose for the incarnation. The incarnation, the gospel of Jesus, it's what Jesus focused on. Jesus, him as the sinner. The creative process is never more exciting than when the creative people think they're doing it to save someone's life. And all the creative people need to say something right now. (laughs) There there is a, because the creative people get scared when I talk about them. Because they're sometimes the most difficult people to pastor. Because they're creative and they're emotional and God made them that way, you know? So you always go, it's okay. God made the heavens and the stars. See how beautiful that is? He was, he was creative too. They're like, okay, thank you, Pastor Doug. I appreciate that. <laughs> but the creative, the creative potential in a church, why is it that some of the most successful churches in America today have the most vibrant, ridiculous, creative media ministries in the world? We've got Stephen Furtick uh, coming to preach at our next conference with us. Stephen has 30 people on his full-time on his media staff. And he's got like four pastors. He's got four or five pastors. And that's because pastoring is not a staff job. It's all of our jobs. It's not about who you can put in the pulpit and give them a title. It's about people embracing the fact that we're all pastors. We're all leaders. We're all called to share the gospel. But in the 90s, 80s, 90s, we flipped it. And the goal was to try and be on staff at a church. Oh, I'm called to the ministry. Well, great. You don't get paid. But isn't that the same thing? Isn't the call mean you get a paycheck? No. The call means that you embrace the gospel. And the gospel is not about a paycheck. As a matter of fact, the gospel is about laying everything down, not seeing what you can pick up. 
So all of a sudden now, he employs people who help deliver the message. So they're doing messages. They've got movies and videos and testimonies in every service. Everything is about the transformation of people. And no one can seem to figure out why the guy's so young and how his church grew so fast. I know why it grew so fast. Is he a good preacher? Yeah. But you know what he's done really well? He shared the transformation stories of how the gospel works in people's lives every single day. And the creative people go nuts. Yeah, right. They're like, I can paint that. <laughs> paint what? What you said. What did I say? I felt it. <laughs> I can paint it. Well, paint it, man. Paint it. Just paint that thing. I can photograph that. I can do that in a monologue. I can do video like that. I mean, I've got Pro Tools and I've got, you know, I've got um, uh, all the, the motion graphics software. I've got it all, but I've never really used it because it's not my career, but it's your joy, right? Yeah, but I don't really use it. Okay, let's use it to get some people saved. And they go, oh, I can do that. So one of the first things we did is we went out and bought the equipment so that the creative people, when they came, they had something to work with because we understand that the creative process is stifled when the church isn't about the people and the gospel, that it's about church work instead of gospel work. Number five, when you get off track and off course from the gospel, culture becomes the enemy instead of our context. This one has, has a bite to it, and I'm just trying to determine. Culture becomes the enemy Instead of our context, let me say it this way. In culture, the less relevant your message, the more legalistic your mindset. Let me say it again. The less relevant your message, the more legalistic your mindset. The more that church is about church work, which by the way is a good work, don't misunderstand me this morning. But when it becomes just about the church, what we can do, what we can't do, what we look like, how we, you know, how we do things, it's church work. We at times think we're becoming more relevant, but we're actually becoming more irrelevant because we're separating from the gospel. And so we become more legalistic because we begin to hold each other accountable for the things that we think we're supposed to do while we're living in context with each other. And we begin to talk about culture. This is, this is a big one for today. Ah, culture, you know. You know, I, I just, I, you know, our teenagers should, we just don't, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't hang out with the girls who do. <laughs> what I heard. <laughs> culture is not the enemy. But what is culture? The spirit of the Antichrist. Okay, fine. It's just, it's where you live, people. I'm not saying embrace the culture and become like the, the culture. I'm saying the culture is where you live. And when your goal is the gospel, the culture is no longer the enemy. It's just your context to save people. Yeah, is the ocean... When someone's drowning in the ocean, is the ocean bad? Yeah, but guess what? You're the one with the life ring. Get in there and get them out. Yeah. The ocean's bad. Water's bad. Stay away from it. Water's bad? Yeah. 
Yeah, and so, so are earthquakes. So don't go anywhere where there are some. It's bad. Don't go there. Jesus isn't there. <laughs> Jesus isn't there. And we, we start to view people as if Jesus isn't where they are. Well, Jesus may not be where they are, but it's because you won't go there. See, I don't know if I've ever used this, this analogy before. Now, don't, don't, mis- don't misunderstand me. I believe in sanctification. I believe in set apart, being set apart. But set apart but it does not mean hidden away. Stroking each other. You're doing so good. You look so good. You look exactly the way a Christian should look. I've been working on you for years. Right? So... I don't, I don't remember if we've, if we've done this, this or not, but here, here it comes. So the, uh, when I think of sanctification, sanctification is like, a, uh, is like a submarine, okay? So a submarine, and there's one in our city. If you've ever seen the old movie Hunt for Red October, by the way, I've seen it like 19 times. Um, Hunt for Red October, there was a submarine in that movie. That submarine is in Oregon. It sits, it's a museum now down by the docks, and we got to tour through it a few times. Uh, sanctification is like a submarine, so check this out. A submarine, a submarine that is out of the water is not fulfilling its mission. A submarine filled with water has failed its mission. But a submarine that is in the water, not filled with water, what happens is the submarine insulates you from the water, but doesn't isolate you from the water. And and most Christians in in the last 20 years, we've lived in an isolation mindset instead of an insulation mindset. Sanctification is not so that you can be out of the water. Sanctification is so that you can fulfill your mission and culture. Yeah. Scripture talks about being set apart and being having on you know, the, the armor of God and the righteousness of Christ so that we can move into what it is we're supposed to accomplish. We're not supposed to hide. We're supposed to dive in. Dive in. Run in. Run in. Big Pete's not here today. He's over in the kids' room. He's 300 pounds of uh, uh, second graders right now across the room. Before he left, he was, he was uh, decorated as a fireman because he rescued a woman from a burning building. Now, maybe they picked him because he was the biggest guy. You can carry her out. But he goes in there, goes to the door, gas mask on, crawls through the dark on his belly, through the flames, grabs a woman, puts over her shoulder, and carries her out of a building. He's decorated in the city of Portland. If you're the one, if your family member is uh, the one in the fire, you don't want someone to say, whoo, you know, it's really hot in there. Fire's bad. Not doing it. I'm going to make sure that I don't let any fire get on my body. No, you want someone to put on a gas mask and a fire retardant suit and break through the door, ladies and gentlemen, and get your loved one. And even when you're struggling, you want them to get you. Yeah. Firefighters have a phrase. It's called take the door, take the door. 
And when there's somebody inside or they've got to get into a building and it's on fire, they'll come over the road. They'll say, take the door. Take the door does not mean open the door. Take the door literally means to shatter it. Take it. They have tools for this. Don't try to bust it down. You get a machine, you get a tank, you get a big piece of metal and nine guys, and you shatter the door. To take the door means to shatter it, to make it disappear, to leave nothing left. When someone is dying and they don't know Christ and Jesus is not working, the gospel's not there, it is our responsibility not to isolate ourselves and watch the, bro- the building burn. Come on, take the door. This is the kind of church that you build when the gospel is central, where the church work flows out of the gospel work, where everything flows out of what God's trying to do. And I've got to finish right here, but let me go very quickly. Number six, uh, a burden for others balances the agenda for ourselves. A burden for others will always balance the agenda that we have for ourselves. If the burden that we have is not a selfless, or it leads us to selflessness, it becomes selfish. The burden that we have from God will always cause us to be more selfless. And if it doesn't, then we become more selfish. Um, it's kind of like this happened this week at the pastor's conference. This is where it always, these things happen. Have you ever offered to take somebody out to lunch, but it's really just because you're craving something and you want someone to go? Have you ever done that? This just came to me. <laughs> I had like two pastors that wanted to eat this week. I was like, oh, no. Then I started thinking about this restaurant. I'm like, you know, you want to go out to eat? Should we hang out? You know, we get in the car. We start driving. They're like, where are you driving? Oh, nowhere in particular. Got any ideas? Seems actually a master at this. <laughs> me and us seem like to eat, all right? We like to eat. I said to this one guy, I said, where, where do you want to go? Next thing I know, he's, he's, uh, he's got a restaurant mind. It's already picked out. It wasn't him. He's got it all picked out, and uh, we went and sat down, and I realized he offered to take me out to get a bite because he was, he was thinking. So is the burden then for other people genuinely, or, or are people just a, a means to our end so that we can do something selfish or that we can look for some kind of attention uh, to ourselves? Uh, I'm going to give you the last four. Here, here they are. Gift expression becomes more important than the gift purpose. When the gospel is not central, the gift expression becomes more important than the gift purpose. People want, want to fulfill their gifts, but why do you want your gift fulfilled? Is it for you so that you can feel a certain thing, act a certain way? You can say that you're doing what you feel, you're, or is, is the purpose more important than the gift? Because then the thing that you're a part of is bigger and more important than the part you play. And the minute that you realize that, then the team can begin uh, to move together. Number eight, the ability to find the strength to change and to grow becomes more difficult. If the gospel is not central and things need to change, it gets very tiring. We have a storage unit filled with boxes. And uh, my mother-in-law said, hey, I need to get a box out of your storage unit. I said, okay. The problem was is that it was all the way (laughs) on the other side. So there's like 100 boxes between here and there. And to get there was too much, so we gave up. Some people have gone through so much time doing things that don't motivate them, keep them in mediocrity. It's not for the gospel. It's just all messed up in their head. The philosophies don't make sense. They just, that finally, when the gospel thing presents itself, it's behind all the other boxes, and there's not enough virtue to go get it. 
So God can change that. Number nine, the voice, God's voice becomes easier and easier to ignore. God's voice becomes easier and easier to ignore. When the gospel is not central, we don't have the virtue, we don't have the energy, things aren't right, things are off center. When God does speak, we tend to just push it away and go, well, maybe he said that, maybe he didn't, and I don't know if there's anything I can do about it. The word can't becomes an easy word to say. There's a certain point where we settle into a a way of living and a way of thinking to where when somebody gets an idea for the gospel to do something for God, to do an outreach, to make something happen, move something, we tend to think first, I can't. That's too expensive. I can't. That takes too many people. I can't. I don't know if I have the leaders for that. I can't. We're not there yet. And God is speaking because what God does is that when we trust him, instead of saying, I can't, but I will, because if that's what he's saying, let's do it, he meets you at the point of the I will, and he opens doors that were not open when you thought you couldn't. See, just step out and you do it. It's like walking on water. You get out on water, you think you're going to sink, and then you end up walking on the water. And then your brain gets engaged. You start to sink. Jesus comes by and picks you up and lifts you up again. But the I can't mentality is what happens when the gospel is out of focus. And the last one, the gospel becomes unreachable instead of unstoppable. When the gospel is not central to everything that we do, ultimately it becomes unreachable because even if all the programs look right, We've now found ourselves in a context in a, a church work culture where to get over to this point again is just too much. It's going to take too many years. But we have a gospel that should be, can I hear an amen, unstoppable. So the way you do that is by staying on track and keeping it safe. Okay.